This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. And now, Christ and Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. Thanks for joining our conversation today. I'm Erin Straza, and with me is Hannah Anderson. We're your hosts for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. We're just a few episodes in to a new series we're calling The Creative Process, and we want to emphasize that word process there because every episode we will be processing a different aspect of creative pursuits in light of today's digital age and today's marketplace, and sometimes that marketplace in the digital age, it can be detrimental to true creativity, while in other ways, it actually enhances. So we're going to look at that in all sorts of aspects. And today, we have a great episode lined up. I'm so excited today, Hannah, to keep talking about how these different pieces of the creative life come together, even as they have really different tensions related to each piece of the creative life. Yes, and I was so glad for our last conversation with Michelle Radford to just talk about um, first going ahead and finding space, going ahead and making space for your creative work or your craft and how it's not necessary. It's not selfish to make space for it. Um, and particularly to, you know, make space in the busyness and the sheer accessibility of online life. So I felt like that. I hope that was for listeners permission if they needed it to go ahead and say, no, this is important. I can give myself to whatever craft or art or calling that I feel God has for me um, and go ahead and commit to that process. I felt very challenged and encouraged by that conversation because that's something that I struggle with is this balance between how do you find the space and time and make that a priority without feeling like you're neglecting something else. And it really is that that challenge of making something a priority. And so I really appreciate that conversation and and trying to balance out what is my life in terms of creativity. And uh, I, I think other listeners um, are probably feeling that same that same encouragement and challenge. And and so I, I think that today's conversation is going to be a really good addition to that. Um, it's like we're building this foundation of the discussion of the creative life. And uh, I think I think today we've got a, another good conversation all lined up for you listeners. We have another guest. We're so pleased to have Kendall Vanderslice with us again. She was with us one other time before on Persuasion. Kendall is a Christ and Pop culture writer. She has her um, 
degrees from Wheaton and Boston University. She's currently studying at Duke University, all in anthropology, gastronomy, and theology of bread, which I'm excited to hear more about. And Kendall has her first book out called We Will Feast, Rethinking Dinner, Worship, and the Community of God. So Kendall, thanks so much for joining us today on Persuasion. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. And one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on, Kendall, is because you have given so much time and focus to making space for your craft. This has been something Mm -hmm. that you have discovered as a calling. I was wondering if you could maybe just tell listeners how you found this to be your space. How did you find your niche? Yeah, so it's it's been sort of a circuitous journey to wind up here. But um, I have always loved baking. It was always the um, it is what I how I spent my free time growing up, what I did when I was anxious, what I did when I was excited. Um, I would always wind up in the kitchen baking. And so as I was working my way through high school and through college, all I wanted to do was um, was have a career in the kitchen, uh, baking bread, making cakes, uh, making cookies. And so while I was in undergrad, I all I wanted to do was go on and bake. But um, I found myself doing a degree in anthropology at Wheaton College uh, for really no reason other than to say that God had clearly called me there. Um, I really did not want to go to college. And for a number of reasons, God had made it so clear that I was supposed to be at this school. Um, and as I was doing my studies in anthropology, we uh, got two new faculty that both did anthropology of food and anthropology of consumption. And they just opened my eyes to an entirely new way to think about food and how food engages with um, our lives, how it in, how it connects us to community, how it connects us to um, our own understanding of identity. And that just completely transformed then my approach to baking. Um, so I did go on and and continue to work in this career in the culinary arts, working in restaurants and in bakeries. Um, but I've been able to carry with it this uh, interest in much deeper layers of food and, and thinking about um, thinking about what the process of baking does to me as a baker and what the process of eating does to those who enjoy the things that I make. Um, and so I've been able to craft this really beautiful career of both baking and writing. Um, and I don't think I can do either one without the other. I need to bake in order to write, and I need to write to really be thoughtful in my baking. I want to explore that a little bit more before we dig into some of the topics we want to hit with you today, Kendall, because yeah. this whole idea of your um, pursuit of baking and and the the baking process, and then how that parallels with writing and the writing process. Mm -hmm. Do you see that those two things help each other with um, even how you pursue them, the the pursuit of baking and the pursuit of writing? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, for in the process of baking, I think just my body your body is engaged throughout this entire process of baking and your mind has so much free time, <laughs> um, you know, following these rhythms of just shaping the same shape again and again and again. Um, it allows, it's your body that knows what it's doing um, and your body that knows, that can read kind of what the dough needs. And um, so your body is consistently engaged and your mind has a lot of time 
to just process and think. And so for me, so much of my writing has been born out of times at the baker's bench. Um, while I'm while I'm shaping dough, I am processing what it is that I'm about to write. But I also think that I would get really bored of just baking alone um, if I didn't also have the <laughs> the writing piece. That it really helps me to reflect more deeply on what is it that happens um, when I'm baking. And I think it's fascinating, particularly in the digital age, um, that we understand writing in the digital age because so much of our online life is communication through words, right? We're Mm -hmm. even on social media, we're making comments or we're talking to each other, not necessarily through speech, but through written words. So I think we understand how writing is furthered and maybe even hindered sometimes by the digital age. But what has been remarkable, I've found remarkable, is that the digital age has also brought about this kind of foodie culture, um, this, mm-hmm. this growth in people's awareness of the art form of food. But what I find fascinating is that food and gastronomy has, it, it is a holistic experience that can't necessarily be translated, um, through the internet. So we can see a beautiful mm-hmm. picture of a plate of food, but we don't have the texture or the, taste or the smell. So in some ways, there's still kind of limitations. This is really an art form that has to be experienced in person. Absolutely. And I think also it, it that is really a testament to um, what an art form writing about food well is, that it really takes a lot of thought and a lot of craft to be able to use words to convey those smells and those scents and those textures. Um, and I think that for all that Instagram has done to boost a lot of this, the beauty of food uh, visually, it has really taken away from our ability to use words well to describe these experiences um, and has almost, I think, devalued the importance of the actual flavor and the taste and the textures because we're so concerned with the visual. Someone will spend, you know, 10 minutes photographing their meal before eating it. And by then it's it's gone cold and it isn't going to taste as well, but it might look good. And <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, I've experienced that even as a as a as an eater, let's say at a restaurant, Mm -hmm. it's like I'm there to have a great meal and I see something and it is beautiful. And so I may take a snapshot of it, but then it's like, oh, but was that as tasty as what it looked? Like it it looked great, but maybe it didn't hold up to what my expectations were because it looked so beautiful. And and then there isn't as much of an enjoyable story to share because it was like, eh, it was all right, but it looked great. Um, there, yeah. There's that balance. Like, I want both. Like, I, I want mm-hmm. I want it to look pretty and I also want it to taste good. But more than that, if I only had to pick one over the other, it needs to taste good. Yeah, <laughs> More so than look good. <laughs> yeah. The other thing I think happens with the way we try to encounter food online um, through visual imagery is that it freezes it in a moment in time, right? And one of the things about a dish is that it is very temporal. Um, you, you have it, you can spend all this time creating it, but the eater will consume it within what, 20 minutes? 30 if we're lucky. Mm-hmm. And so there's also this question of, you know, trying to freeze art 
in a moment in time and make it last longer by the picture. And yet food is something that is consumed over and over and over again. And it has a very temporal nature. Mm -hmm. And so I think in many ways, the, the goodness of it is its temporal nature. Part of what makes that food so beautiful and so um, meaningful is the fact that it is not meant to last and it won't last and it can't last. Mm. Kind of like how you said, like if it it's coming out at a certain temperature, that's going to be the ideal state to consume it. So mm-hmm. if you would wait, you're going to lose out on some of that enjoyment by by making mm-hmm. it last longer or by not taking taking it in right at that moment. Yeah, I think that we, especially this this digital age where we have been so trained to um, to get what we want when we want it, to have it exactly when we want it, mm. and um, so it, it trains us kind of away from this patience of waiting for something when it is best or letting mm. something be temporal and be consumed when it's time for it to be consumed is mm. just so far from the rhythms of kind of how culture trains us right now. Um, and it, I think that is exemplified in sort of food media being valued even above the actual consumption of food. Mm-hmm. And you know, that kind of tension of validating an art form or a craft that sits in a space and time where it is best. Um, I think food definitely illustrates that for us, but I've also felt that in writing. And one of the first things that I struggled with as a writer was, um, why should I write if I'm not going to write something that's a classic? Now that may sound ridiculous. You know, that, that may sound like I'm an arrogant kind of creative person who, you know, has high opinion of her writing. But really for me, it was a question of, um, other people have said this in the past. There are other people who will probably say it better than I can. So why should I do it? if it's not going to last forever. And so I was wrestling with this sense of, I wanted the work I did to last a lot longer. And someone very wisely told me, no, your job is to write for now. Your job is to write to the people who in this moment in time need to understand something more universal. And you have to be okay with your work uh, really serving a more temporal limited audience or a moment in time and that the the temporal limitations of your work are not a testament to the validity of your work. I think that we are really, we fail to, to recognize how much the actual work of creation forms us when we're concerned with longevity as well. That That when we're concerned with the time constraints of how long our creation is going to last, we are thinking that that end creation is itself the end goal. Um, but the process of writing, whether or not those words last or have impact, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, um, they still have transformed even you as a writer through the writing of them. Or this process of baking has transformed me as a baker in the baking of this bread. Um, and so, it's really a, a funny shift when we're thinking about the the role of time in this act of creation where it's really easy to think that the the final product is the goal. But I don't think that that really is the goal in creative work. I really appreciate that because as I've worked through my writing and I, I've written one book now and just um, the last speaking engagement I had, I was like, oh my goodness, the last... 
the last time I wrote or worked on this book, now it's been years, and I felt like there was this big gap between when my artifact was released and where I am today. And it's like, I am not the same person. And yet, this work is still valid. But I felt um, a burden in a good way to explain to people that this is a snapshot. And now let me tell you about how this work has continued to work mm-hmm. in me over time. And so balancing out that tension of I'm creating this thing, and it is for the moment, and it's true in this moment. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to now be stuck in that moment forever. But there's still value in experiencing that creative process and releasing that art out into the world. It, this is something I think we all have to deal with, whether you are a writer or a baker, like I even think of um, performance art of whatever kind, uh, a Broadway play or a symphony, like those things are experienced in a live moment. They're still valuable, even though you don't necessarily carry that thing with you live from there on out. So this this idea of time, it's it's so crucial for us to to wrestle with and grapple with. And I think too there's a um there's a potential for this kind of pragmatism of wanting to get to the end product. Like you mentioned, mm-hmm. Kendall, that yep. we can miss not just how the work is forming and shaping us, but we can also miss the the things that are necessary to creation, like the, the techniques, the skills, the practices, the repetition, all of these things that go into the work that will never be seen or that really just form you and your capacity and it doesn't result in a finished artifact. And I think so much, especially of the digital age is wanting to have as many artifacts as possible, right? To, to distribute, to sell, to, to write as many books as possible, to have as many Instagram posts as possible, to, to produce as many artifacts as possible kind of will disrupt the kinds of quiet formation that you're talking about, Kendall. Yeah. And I, I think for me, this is why bread really is, um, the, the, the form of baking that I love most because I think it really does exemplify that that tension um, and really points to what is lost when we don't value those slow and long processes. Um, that it's it's possible to make a loaf of bread in three hours, um, which even for some people might feel like a really long time. Um, but in in the process of bread making, that is fast, and that is too fast for bread to really mm. be good. Um, for for a loaf of bread to be good, it's going to take twelve hours, and it's going to take a lot of just waiting and waiting and waiting. Mm. Um, and the baker has to recognize that you have a very small part to play in the success of this bread and in the overall. Um, shape that the bread takes, that really it is water and it is microbes and it is yeast that we cannot even see that that do their work slowly over the course of 12 hours and transform this grain into something entirely different. Um, and it, it's a very humbling process to recognize that I can't do this in my time. I can't do this. Um, I can't I can't have as much control over this creation as I want to have. Um, I can simply put the right conditions together and respond to the wrong conditions as best I can and then wait and have patience. And um, it, it takes time to develop the skill to know what those right conditions are and know what, what this creation needs. But um, it's such a slow 
repetitive um, and just patience-inducing process to get something good in the end. Um, And that goes entirely against our speedy kind of capitalist um, expectations that that a product that takes 16 hours and then is no good after one day um, <laughs> really just <laughs> doesn't doesn't seem valuable in in the things that we're trained to value. But I think that process is so valuable. That process sounds like the perfect description of the disciple's life, <laughs> where you're saying it's it's like you're putting in these inputs and all you can do is is your part of it, but then there are going to be these other circumstances that are going to have their say, and then you have to respond to them in a way that is um, aligning with what we know to be true about who God is. And so that that's so encouraging to me that there's the same sort of process, and um, it's a teaching through the process of what does it mean to be faithful and to walk with God in these things, in these daily rituals and in things that are really spiritual disciplines and spiritual formation. It, it is a type of liturgy, and that's so encouraging. And I think you probably also have to learn to trust the process, right? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I know in my own work, there have been times that have felt fallow, like where I wasn't actively producing anything and it felt like, oh, I'm slipping behind or I should be some, I should have something to put out there or I haven't created something. And to trust that just as like the microbes are working away at the flower, that there are things that God is doing in you that you would not be able to produce or to create what you are going to eventually be called to create if we're not for those times of rest and those times of um, just space to let the process happen. So like even in your baking, what are the kinds of ways that you have had to learn to trust the process? Mm. Yeah, I I think in many ways, um, trusting that the ingredients that I've purchased are going to do what they're meant to do, even when I can't see it. Um, I Right now, I, I run a bread share program, um, so it's similar in model to a CSA um, where people buy a share and then they receive a loaf of bread a week for the length of the share. So I'll mix all my dough up on Wednesday and then I shape it and bake it and deliver it on Thursday. Um, and because you know there are many beautiful aspects to this rhythm that it's very simple, um, every loaf that I make is um, short, is already purchased, so I know it's going to... Um, it's going to go somewhere. It's not going to sit on a shelf and then go bad. Um, but part of the really terrifying thing that I've had to learn to trust myself as a baker is that, um, you know, I, if something goes wrong, if I've, if I've mixed the batter, the batch of dough wrong, I'm not going to know until the next day that it, it takes 12 hours for those mistakes to really show up. And by that point, it's going to be too late. And so it's a very humbling process to, to trust that I know what I'm doing, that I know how to read the dough and that the ingredients that I bought are going to, you know, my yeast is going to come to life when I mix it and I'm not going to accidentally kill it or by these various, you know, trusting that I know how to read this um, environment and give this dough um, the best uh, 
form this dough in the best way that that I can and then leave it alone for 12 hours and come back and trust it will be there ready um ready to go and be delivered on time and that that really is a humbling process i every day when i go to bake it every thursday i think you know what would happen if one day i have to email every one of my shareholders and tell them i'm sorry we don't have bread today because you know i mismeasured my yeast <laughs> there's nothing you can do to to fix it when your rhythm is like that but you also, even though you say you're trusting these ingredients, you you mentioned this a couple times, how you need to know how to read read the dough. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing that there's something about the the time and the number of times that you have mm-hmm. spent working with dough where you know how to read it. And so again, it's it's something that is the craft that you have to put in the time so that you can have these skills. So it's not like if you gave me all these ingredients, I would be able to do the same thing that you're doing the first day, because I have no idea how right. to do any of that. <laughs> right. And and I um, I tell people often, I, I teach these bread baking workshops, and I give people recipes. Yeah, so, so when I teach people about baking bread, I always have to warn them, you know, I can give you a recipe, but this recipe... Um, is only a very small piece of learning to bake bread. It's you're going to have to make it again and again and again and really get the feel for what this dough feels like. It's gonna it's gonna be different in December than it is in March than it is in July. It's gonna be different if you bake it in New England versus if you bake it in Florida. Um, the humidity and the temperature are all going to change the feel of this dough. And you as a baker, your responsibility is to learn what it needs. Does your dough need more flour? Does your dough need more water? Does your dough need a little bit more time um, to rise? Does it need less time to rise? And how do you respond to these shifts? Um, That's part of the process of learning to bake. And a a book can't really teach you that. And a cooking show can't Mm -hmm. really teach you that. And a a three-hour workshop can't teach you that. And it really requires getting your hands in the dough again and again and again and being okay with failure, being okay with with dough that is um, maybe not going to look the prettiest. Um, but one of, one of the things I love so much about bread is that um, – and why I think it's such a powerful theological tool um, is that bread is incredibly simple and infinitely complex – at the same time, that it is at its most basic flour and water and salt and yeast. And you mix it up and you heat it up. And it has been the core of the human diet for most of human history. And yet, um, it has been in the human diet for most of human history. And we are still learning new things about how it works and learning new ways to evoke flavor out of grains and new ways to use time and temperature to get different layers of texture and flavor into the bread itself. And so you can commit your entire life to the craft of baking and still not master it um, and still have more to learn from the dough itself. And that's just a for me, one of the most beautiful and humbling things about it. And and you can hear the passion in your voice when you're talking about this. And mm-hmm. and I think that is such a testament to a true craftsperson, not someone who is just pragmatically trying to make things to sell or make things for an end, but to mm. love what you're making and to commit to it with a, with a level of humility and even reverence. And what I'm hearing mm. you describe is how the creative process isn't 
just about creating something. It's about being created into something. And even the way you're describing development of skill and knowledge and expertise, it really goes against the grain of a digital age where we can all Google how to, right? How to decorate something, how to make something. And I love the DIY world. I mean, I love being able to get information from YouTube or all these other places where I can see how to do something that I never would have been able to learn how to do before. But like you've said, Kendall, to become a craftsperson, to to actually become skilled in these things has to go beyond just learning the basics. It, It has to become almost a way of life. It has to become something that becomes part of who you are, not just this thing outside of yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Kendall, we are so appreciative that you would come and talk to us about these things. Do you have any last little bit that you want to share with our listeners about approaching their craft and uh, maybe thinking through this temporal nature of creating in a different way? Yeah, I think the the thing that Brad teaches me and that what I hope it teaches people of all crafts is to really consider what happens when you slow your craft down? What mm. happens when you um, approach it with um, with this mentality of, of of what does this have to teach me, and how does this have how does this intend to form me, um, rather than as production, or rather than as this this final product as the end goal? Um, what what would it look like to approach your your craft with patience and and seeing the process itself as the um, the the end goal. <laughs> well, we we really do appreciate you being with us, Kendall. Thank you so much. Yeah, we absolutely. we love having you here, and we will make sure that we get all of the ways that people can find you and find your writing. We'll get all those put into the show notes. But that's all we have time for for today's conversation. But all of you listeners out there, we want to make sure that you are keeping up with us on the series. There's the the intro called The Creative Life. Make sure if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, get download that and listen in. And then last week's episode was Processing Creative Space with Michelle Radford. We'll get that in the show notes too. But we would all we would love to have all of you out there interacting with us and and with Kendall as well. Um Hannah, do we have a question of the day to to spark some conversation online? We do. And I love how Kendall directed us in this direction of patience or of slowing down. And I love her question of what would it look like to approach your craft with patience and to let it form you. And so the question we want to ask listeners this week is, how have you been formed by the art you are forming? What ways has your writing, your baking, um, or woodwork, your studio, whatever your craft is, how have you been formed by the art you are forming? How have you been formed by the art you are forming? And as always, you can join us on Twitter at Persuasion CAPC. You can also join us in the Christ and Pop Culture Members Forum. Uh, we'll find all three of us and we can have wonderful discussions there about the creative process, the creative life, and even questions of how craft forms us. If you're not a member, you can become a member for just $5 a month and support these conversations, support um, the articles and the digital magazine that come out. Um, and we would love to have you join us there. 
We want to give a shout out to Jonathan Clausen. He produces Persuasion and all the other shows in our podcast network. You can give them a listen at ChristandPopCulture.com, or you can go to iTunes and search for the shows under Christ and Pop Culture. When you are there, we would love, love, love to hear what you think. Be sure to give your ratings and your reviews online so other people can find us too. We do greatly appreciate all of you listening to Persuasion, and we will catch you next time. You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at ChristandPopCulture.com slash network. Theme music by Maiden Name. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.